You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn to the Gospel according to John chapter 1. We begin our reading at verse 29 to the end of the chapter. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip followed Nathanael, or found Nathanael, and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it in the gospel according to John chapter 2, the verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. 
And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, do you ever cheat No, I don't mean cheat on your wife or husband or boss. And neither do I mean do you cheat at school when you have a test or in catechism class. Rather, I mean, do you ever cheat when you're reading a book? Now, you might wonder, how does one do that? Well, you do it by turning to the last page of a book to find out the outcome of the story. In other words, you can't wait to see who lives or who dies, who falls in love or doesn't fall in love, who gets the girl or doesn't get her. You just have to know. You're so lacking in patience and in self-control, and hence you cheat. You look at the last page and you peek. Now that's sad, isn't it? Rather disappointing, even disgusting. I would say it's probably all of that and more. But you know, sometimes it's necessary to Take the Gospel of John as an example. If you don't cheat, you'll never get to know the real intent of the Gospel until perhaps it might even be too late. For look, what does it say in John 20, verse 31? It's almost at the very end, and there John writes, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, you can say, John really has one great intention. 
One great aim throughout his gospel, and it is this, to convince us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And to convince us that he is the only true life giver. That there isn't any other. Don't bother looking. He and he alone is the one. So that's how John ends his gospel. But you might be wondering, what are these things that lead us to believe? Better yet, what are these signs, these miraculous signs, as John 20 verse 30 calls them, that cause people to believe? Well, there are a number of them. Seven in all. And what is the first one? First one has to do with a wedding, with wine. It has to do with celebration. So the first sign is a happy one. And therefore I'd like to preach to you on the following theme this morning. The Son of God makes new wine for a new life. We're going to take note of the situation, the miracle, and finally, the sign. Now, beloved, here in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, you can say that the Messiah starts his work in earnest. Chapter 1 of John's Gospel is all about preparation. First, Jesus is introduced in those majestic terms and called the Word. Thereafter, John the Baptist marches onto the scene. And next, Jesus begins to choose his first disciples. And now it's time for the official work of salvation to commence. But what is it? According to John, the first thing that Jesus does when he starts his actual ministry is go to a wedding. Now we might wonder about that. Is this a good way to begin your ministry? Is this a good and proper way to launch a new reformation? Nothing against weddings, but they're usually festive, sometimes even, dare I say, frivolous affairs. They're dominated by a kind of party spirit, and sometimes they get out of hand. And Jesus didn't come to launch a party, but to bring on the kingdom of God. So we wonder whether all of this is fitting, whether all of this is proper. And maybe the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had the same problem, because you'll notice when you turn to their gospels, none of them mention this incident. And certainly none of them dare begin to picture Jesus' messianic work as starting with a wedding. All of that makes you curious, doesn't it? But nevertheless, notice Jesus goes. He gets invited. Most likely he gets invited because he may very well have been a relative or a a family friend. Notice who else is invited. Mary, his mother. So probably Jesus gets invited. Mary gets invited. Some rest of the family. Jesus' disciples. And they all travel to Cana, a little town in the north in Galilee. And once there, notice, we're not really introduced to the bride and groom. We're not told anything about the wedding ceremony. 
But you know, it doesn't take very long before we get to hear about a certain problem. A problem at the wedding. They don't have enough wine. Now, we would say that's a rather minor problem in the scheme of things. If the wine runs out too bad, why don't you try water or why don't you try juice? Or otherwise, simply do without. But you know, if you say that, you really show that you don't understand anything about a Jewish wedding. In Israel, the rabbis coined the expression, without wine, there is no joy. Now, don't get the rabbis wrong. They say this not because they were a bunch of wine-bibbers or avid party-goers. As a matter of fact, the rabbis used to insist whenever wine was served, it actually should be diluted. Three parts water for one part of wine. Sounds like Kool-Aid or grape juice to me. In any case, the important thing to understand here is that no proper Jewish wedding can be without wine. If that happens, it spells disaster. You can be sure people are going to talk about your wedding, your wineless wedding, for decades. But you know, there's also something else going on here that you need to be aware of, and that's not so much about reputation as it is about obligation. In Galilee and elsewhere, weddings were long involved, even legal affairs. You may have heard they went on for about a week. They were loaded down with all kinds of traditions and and customs and and procedures that had to be followed to a T. And they were also legal affairs in that the bridegroom would have certain obligations to fulfill respective to his future in-laws. And if those obligations were not met, then the lawsuits were known to fly. So if you got married in this time, you'd better make every effort to ensure that everything went well or else. And what that means, beloved, is that those words of Mary to Jesus about they have no wine are not nearly as minor as they sound to us. Mary knows that this may well ruin the wedding feast. She also knows that this may upset some people and cause them to call the lawyers. And that in the end, it'll prove to be a disaster for the bridal couple in terms of reputation and financial liability. So in a sense, it is with a sense of urgency that she approaches her son. So how does her son respond? Does he say, thanks, mom. I'll take care of it. Thanks for telling me. Now he replies by saying, woman, 
Why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. You'll notice the Niv translation says, Dear woman, however, the word dear is not in the original text. But still, the language is not as distant in Greek as it is in English. Despite that, however, this is still an unusual way for a son to speak to his mother. But then keep in mind, this, of course, is no ordinary son. And keep in mind as well that this is no ordinary ministry that he is commencing. What we need to understand is that our Savior is here putting some distance between his mother and himself. This is his way of telling her that from now on things are going to be different between them. She can no longer presume anything. From now on he will no longer be the dutiful son, but he's going to be God's Messiah. And therefore the words, why are you saying this to me, or why do you involve me, or what do I have to do with you, all indicate that their relationship has changed. But then there are also those words, my time has not yet come. What do they mean? On one level, they mean the same as it's not yet time for me to act. But on another level, they also mean more. John often, and you'll notice that as you read through his gospel, he often speaks about the hour and the time. And both tend to be a reference ultimately to the cross. For as it approaches, Jesus, who has been saying, my time has not yet come, finally says, my time has come. So already early on in the gospel, John is using loaded language. Language that speaks about the present and the future. Language that refers to what is going to happen now and what is going to happen later on. But still, beloved, notice that Mary, Mary is not put off by Jesus' reply to her. She doesn't go off in a half and say over her shoulder, some son you are. No, she tells the servants, watch him. Do what he tells you. She knows that he'll do something. She doesn't know what. She doesn't know when. The suspense is mounting. And Mary is right. For next we are told that Jesus tells the servants to do something, and it is this, fill the jars with water. What jars is he referring to? Well, he's referring to water jars, to large jars that could be found at the entrance of every Jewish house and that were customarily used for purification. But truly, you need to understand two things. The first is that the promised land is a very dusty place. And the second thing is that the Jews are a very fussy people. A member of the household or a guest would not come inside and simply sit down. 
for they would be dirty. Now, one or more of the servants standing at the door would be there when they entered, would pour water on the hands of the family member or the guest. And only then could they properly eat. But remember, this is a wedding. And that usually means lots of water as well as lots of guests for a long time. You need a lot of water to keep many hands clean for a whole week. And hence, John relates that there are six large stone jars standing there. No doubt more had been brought in for this special occasion. And also, each held between 20 to 30 gallons or between 75 and 115 liters. Multiply that by six. And you see they have a lot of water. Over a 100 gallons. Hundreds of liters of the stuff. But beloved, getting back to the Lord Jesus, he first tells the servants to fill the jars. They fill the jars with water to the brim. Next, he tells them to take some of the water they've just poured in and take it to the master of ceremonies. And notice no mention is made of how the servants react to this request of his, although they must have wondered about the sense of this. After all, water is water is water. What's so special about water and why are we bringing it to the MC of the ceremony? But they're good servants. They do as they're told and they don't question. And the MC in turn takes the water, drinks some of it and He's stunned. And why is he stunned? Not because it's wine, but because of the quality of the wine. And because instead of it being served first, it's being served last. And you can read in our text, that's kind of unusual in that time. At that time, it was customary for the best wine to be served first. And then when the guests had consumed so much that their taste buds were stunted, the cheaper stuff would be brought out. Why serve good, expensive, great wine to people who can't even tell the difference? I think that makes good sense, don't you? Of course, what the MC doesn't know, and what the servants do know, is that something strange has happened. Servants know this wine doesn't come from some kind of special wine vat or skin that they had tapped into. They know it comes from the purification jars. And I strongly suspect that their first reaction to the words of the MC must have been a good laugh. It's only water. And he thinks it's wine. What a joke. He must have had too much to drink. But then, beloved, it dawns on them, probably as they tasted as well, 
And it dawns on the others who are present in due time, too, that this is no joke. This is a miracle. This is a wonder. Who in this world has the power to turn water into wine? And then water into first quality wine of that. This is something beyond our understanding and comprehension. We could try to do it a million times. And we couldn't pull it off. But Jesus does. Very quietly, very calmly, very matter-of-factly. And John says this is now the first great display of his power. The first great proof that he is the Son of God. Now, beloved, the gospel writer John comments this, the first of the signs Jesus performed. Cana of Galilee. But of course, at this point, you need to ask yourself as well, what does all of this mean? And what implications does it have for then? What implications does it have for us today? How does all of this apply? Well, you know, there are a number of things that stand out in this whole miracle, this first great miraculous sign. And the first thing is surely, that's kind of the obvious thing, the compassion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First, think about it. He could have left this newly married couple to flounder, to suffer embarrassment, even financial loss. He could have let them start their married life under a cloud. But instead he does the opposite. He promotes it. Forever after their marriage is going to be renowned and famous for the fact that there's where they serve the best wine we've ever tasted. You see, the heart of the Savior goes out to them. He helps them. He honors them. And by the same token, he also honors his father. For what's one of the greatest miracles that God the Father works in the beginning? It's surely the fact that he brings the woman to the man. Or you might even want to go back a little further and say the fact that he creates the woman. And then brings her to the man. That he ordains marriage. He blesses it. And now look, as his son Jesus Christ begins his redeeming work, he gets involved in exactly the same thing. Obviously, both the father and the son care about the state of marriage. They care about the marriage of this couple, obscure though they may be. They care about every marriage because the father invented it and the son restores it. 
So, beloved, the first thing you notice here is the compassion of our Savior. The second thing you have to notice here is the joy of our Savior. The very fact that Jesus begins his ministry by appearing as a guest at a wedding and that he participates in this celebration means that he is not adverse to joy, happiness, and laughter. Unfortunately, that's how many depict him. They would have us believe that Jesus is far too serious to get involved ever in a wedding. And they would convince us that sadness and seriousness and somberness are the hallmarks of his life as well as are indisputable to the very character of his kingdom. But that's not true. The intention of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring joy into the life of God's people. True, Christ first has to remove all the obstacles to that joy like sin and the devil and this fallen world. But once he does, the way is cleared for a life of endless joy. Already in this life, the Apostle Paul commands us to be joyful. And says it's one of the hallmarks and distinguishing features of the life of the Spirit. And in the world to come, it'll be even more so. Everything that robs us of joy here, death, mourning, crying, pain, sorrow, it'll all pass away. Jesus, by beginning his ministry, by going to a wedding, signals to us that he is the great joy bringer. So we see here the compassionate Savior, the joy bringing Savior. You can also say we see here as well the abundant Savior. How do we know that? Well, we know that very obviously by the volume of wine that he makes. You know, he didn't have to make 120 gallons of superlative wine or 700 liters or more of that stuff. A lot less would have sufficed. And so we ask, why so much wine? Well, it's to show us, beloved, and to remind us that when the kingdom of God is ushered in, that it is not a kingdom of half measures and of merely bare essentials. It's not a kingdom of tight wads and cheap skates. It's a kingdom of abundance, of plenty. This is the kingdom the style of which is described in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. You see, our God 
is not a God of half measures. Our Savior is not a Savior of just a little bit and that of questionable quality. He will settle for nothing less than a feast, a rich feast, a grand feast, an abundant feast. Here below, you may at times be scraping by. But be assured that tomorrow will be a time of great and glorious feasting. You know, this coming week, they're throwing a big party in Washington and around America and elsewhere. They really can't afford it, but never mind. But really, even this inaugural bash in America for President-elect Barack Obama will not be able to hold a candle to the banquet that Jesus Christ is preparing for his disciples. Many speak of President-elect Obama as if he is the new savior of America. Now, I hope and I pray... And you should as well that he will be a good leader, even a great leader. But he is no savior. And those who expect him to be that will be sorrily disappointed. There's only one savior in this world. And that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, beloved, Jesus is pictured here as the compassionate, the joy-bringing, the abundant Savior, but also, one last thing, as the renewing Savior. You know, you look very closely at John chapter 1, and you look closely as well at John chapter 2, and, and do you see that John has a certain fascination, preoccupation with the word day? He uses it... For example, in chapter 1, verse 29, verse 35, verse 43, as well as in chapter 2, verse 1, he's either talking about the day or the next day or the third day. And we need to ask ourselves, what is this? Well, this is John alluding to the fact that when Jesus comes and begins his great work of redemption, It is fundamentally a work of renewal and of recreation. In John chapter 1 verse 19, we have the first day. In verse 29, we have the second day. In verse 35, we have the third day. Between the verses 42 and 43, we have the fourth day. In verse 43, we have the fifth day. And so John marches on until he comes to a total, a grand total of seven days. So John, in the chapters one and two, refers to seven days. And notice as well, John 1 verse 1 begins, in the beginning. That harkens back to Genesis 1 verse 1, where we hear the same expression, in the beginning. 
You see, there is an old beginning and there is a new beginning. God the Father brings in the first. God the Son brings in the second. As the Father begins His first week in a momentous way, so God the Son begins His first week as well. In a momentous way. And what John means to say by all of this is as God the Father creates all things, so God the Son, when He comes, is busy recreating Renewing, transforming all things as well. Yes, and what we see here happening in Cana is then the first sign, the first indication pointing towards a new creation, a new life, a new world. And beloved, it's all meant to act as an incentive To lead us ultimately to confess, as John the Baptist did, as one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, did, that this is the Son of God. It's meant to bring us to believe in Him. And it's meant to bring us into the possession of that life that will never end. That will be full. Absolutely brimming to the full of abundance, wonderful, glorious life. Beloved, may we embrace this gospel. May we all confess, believe, and rejoice that life, true life, is only to be found in Jesus Christ. The compassionate, the joy-bringing, the abundant, and the recreating Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.